Good morning, everyone. Great to see you all. Just uh, as we get settled and get things going, um, just an incredible privilege, um, humbled by the responsibility and the opportunity to share God's Word always, um, just to exhort and encourage us all that God wants to continue to speak this morning, despite the fact that He's done so much. And I trust and know that your hearts are, are open and ready to receive more and more, not just from the things that I'm going to say, but as, as Fred shares and as we go from this place. Um, Isaiah chapter 56, if you have a Bible, I'd really appreciate it if you could turn there. Um, just as you do that, I, I do just want to share one or two things unrelated to the message that I feel like God uh, just would want me to share um, as, we, as we go from, from this place um, at lunchtime. I came to this equipped with incredible expectation and faith for what God was going to do. And I found myself bombarded by the attack of the enemy leading up to this week, lured by the attraction of crowns of success and the rags of my unrighteousness, things that we so often look to to define us. And this, these last two days, I've seen the face of Jesus. I've seen that double-edged sword coming out of mouths as people have led worship. And I've see, seen the, the eyes of blazing fire of love and fierceness as friends have prayed for me. And it reminded me of a verse in Revelation chapter 1 where John is exiled to the island of Patmos, and he describes seeing Jesus, his face shining like the sun in all its brilliance. I want you to remember those times when you were a child and you, you looked up to the sun a little too long, and the image of the sun was burnt on the back of your retina. And then as you came back and looked at one another, you could faintly see their outline, but all you could really see was the sun. And I felt like that's what God has done with me this week, and perhaps with some of you. As we've gazed on the glory and the majesty and the grace and the love and the mercy and the power and the authority and the patience of our King, I trust that His image has been implanted, uh, uh, burnt into the back of your eyes. And as I turn to those rags, and those crowns, they were faint because of the glory of Jesus. Perhaps that's been something of your experience. But I want to encourage us that we can't just go from this place resting on experiences. There are things that we need to do. There's a responsibility upon each and every one of us as we leave here this afternoon. Now, I was told, and this is similar to the States, that when ministering in Europe, you mustn't use the word must. <laughs> but the good news is, is the scripture that I'm about to read is Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, using the word must. And I feel like 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, is a key verse as we go from this place. And it says this, Paul writes, now it is required, there is a requirement that the Lord has for each and every one of us. God has an expectation upon us. It is required 
that those who have been given a trust, God has entrusted things to us this, over the last two days. God has entrusted dreams. God has entrusted hopes. God has entrusted his word. God has entrusted his presence. God has entrusted destinies and inheritances. God has entrusted uh, a, a power and authority. And it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. For years I read faithful, and I thought God was saying successful. God is not looking for success from us. He's looking for us to be faithful. To take what he's given us and to say, Lord, what would you want me to do with this? What is your plan? And what is your purpose for the things that you have done? All right, that said, let's move on to Isaiah chapter 56. What I want to do today is something of an overview of six or seven chapters found in the book of Isaiah. But I want to start by asking you a question. If you can put that uh, picture up on the screen, that would be great. All right, no picture. There's a painting. There you go. I wonder if some or maybe all know what this is. It's a famous painting called Haystacks by Claude Monet, the French Impressionist painter. Um, it's actually a trick question because I could have put one of 25 paintings behind me. It's a painting that is part of a series of paintings that Claude Monet did just, out, just in his home outside of Paris, northwest of Paris in Giverny, um, written, uh, painted there um, in the 1800s. The same set of haystacks painted in different conditions in different seasons. Uh, I found out that just recently one of those 25 paintings sold for $110 million. Uh, there's something else that connects Chicago and Paris, and that is that the largest collections of these paintings is not surprisingly found here in Paris, but also in uh, the art institutes in downtown Chicago. Amen. <laughs> what we're going to do today is an overview of Isaiah 56 to 62. And I'm going to hopefully describe seven pictures, not 25, but seven pictures of the church that Jesus is building, the community of God's people that are filled with and carry his glory, something far more important than haystacks and something far more valuable than impressionist art. But before we get there, just to make sure we're all on the same page, I want to take two minutes just to make sure we all understand how particularly Old Testament prophecy works. There's been a few folks during the worship and the preaching that have been walking around with a camera taking photographs. You've no doubt seen them. And every time they take a photograph, they are focusing the lens on the subject. But there are people and items both in the foreground and in the background that are out of focus, but they are still there. And in the same way, that's how prophecy, and in particular, Old Testament prophecy works. In the case of the passages of Scripture that we're going to be looking at, generally, Old Testament prophecy speaks into a context where God's people are encountering trouble, and He promises deliverance. In this case, the people of God have been exiled out of Jerusalem and exiled into Babylon. But God promises uh, 
that he is going to gather his people and return them back to Jerusalem. He's going to restore the community of God to become a people who are filled with and carry his glory. In the same way as the the different areas of focus, Isaiah chapter 56 to 62 also points to the church of Jesus Christ that is scattered around the planet today. That we are the people of God that gather in Jesus' name, that sit under Jesus' word, that carry the authority of Jesus, that, that find ourselves in Jesus' presence within communities that, that carry his glory, that shine his glory no matter where we are planted. But ultimately, Isaiah 56 to 62 points to that day, that, that glorious gathering of people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue who one day will all collectively gather before the throne of God. And so what we're going to be doing today is very much identifying headlines. There, to get the most out of this message, there is going to be some work to do. There's going to be some, uh, an opportunity, an invitation to, to take some of the truths, some of the headlines from these passages, and I encourage you to dig deeper and to discover the church that Jesus is building, a people filled with and a people who carry the glory of God. So we're going to begin in Isaiah chapter 56, and starting in verse 1 through 8, the first point that I want to make is Jesus wants his church And therefore, Jesus wants the church that you and the churches that you and I are a part of to become, to be a place where anyone can enter and realize that they are not excluded from God's salvation. Where they can discover that God is closer than they realized. And God does this through the prophet Isaiah by beginning to talk about those who feel furthest away. And in this particular case, he talks about the foreigner and he talks about the eunuch. Look at verse 3. Let no foreigner, let no outsider who is bound to the Lord, who, who now follows the Lord, in other words, let them not say that the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. In other words, I am only damaged goods. Friends, you and I are part of the community of God, yet you and I know what it is like for for us to at times feel like an outsider because of something that we may have done, or or perhaps to feel like damaged goods that are beyond repair because of perhaps something that is done to us. And we have to fight the reality or, or, or the tendency to think that God may have excluded me. But in the community of God's people, there are no outsiders. In the community of God's people, there is is no one that has damaged goods beyond healing and wholeness, which is why uh, Isaiah begins to describe this community in verse 1 as, my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. The, The salvation that God promises is deliverance from the slavery and the striving of living in Babylon. The slavery and striving that, that, that calls for us to constantly work in the hope of finding freedom and being made whole. But friends, the salvation that God promises transfers us out of Babylon, out of that slavery, out of that striving, into a community of rest, 
by faith in Jesus. It's why in chapter 30, Isaiah celebrates in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is, and trust is your strength. Jesus' church is, is home, as Paul writes in Romans 4, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly. And friends, as we've learned this week, this salvation is available to people from every nation and across every generation. In each of the four Gospels, we are, we are told about the time when Jesus went into the temple to, to drive out those who were, who were preventing the temple from becoming a welcoming place for those who were seeking God. And Jesus justifies his righteous anger by quoting verse 7. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all people. We're not just called to pray. We're called to pray for all people. We're called to pray for all nations. We're called to take down those no entry signs on our hearts. Perhaps those no entry signs on our churches. And to replace them with signs that invite people to find the rest that is discovered through faith in Jesus. Jesus wants his church and therefore the church that you and I are a part of to be a place where anyone can enter and realize they are not excluded from God's salvation. The people of Judah often used to talk about the temple that was in Jerusalem as a place that was the the, the dwelling of God. But they knew that it was a metaphor. They knew that it was symbolic. Even Solomon, when he dedicated that temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, says this, will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I built. But in Isaiah 57, and if you could turn over to Isaiah 57 verse 15, God answers Solomon's question about whether God will really dwell on earth by giving a far better promise. Verse 15, for this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. I love that, that, that phrase, the high and exalted one, in the beginning of verse 15. And if you know the book of Isaiah, it surely reminds you of, of what happened in Isaiah 6, where, where he comes into the temple, and, and in a time of crisis, he, he, he begins to worship God, and he sees God high and exalted. And, and friends, God, we need to remember God is transcendent. God is holier than we realize, but we make the mistake of assuming that Because he is lofty, he will never live with the lowly. But in the second half of that verse we just read, God is so attracted to humility and and surrendered hearts. And God is knocking on the door of our lives and, and will come in to anyone who is willing to confess their sin and their weakness. So that means, friends, that, that you and I, as ordinary followers of of Jesus, become a home for the Holy Spirit. We become, uh, even though God is holier than we think, we we realize that that he is closer than we knew. And so secondly, 
Jesus wants his church, and, and therefore the churches that we are a part of, to become a place where we can experience his tangible presence. But this, this invitation comes with a challenge. Verse 14 says this, whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. And then that promise comes. And, and so friends, this, this is a profound challenge. We need to humble ourselves. We need to surrender ourselves so that we can take refuge in God. And I trust that as we do that, we will be a people and a church where God is present. But we must remember, we can't be full of God's spirit and full of ourselves at the same time. He wants his church to be a place where people can experience his tangible presence. We live in a beautiful city, a different beauty to Paris and the cities that each of you are from. In my opinion, it's a spectacular, spectacular city. But a city that has gone through some significant troubles and, and struggles over the last few years, as I'm sure many of the towns and cities that you are from. During... Uh, during COVID, I'm sure some of you, or perhaps all of you, have heard, heard about the murder of George Floyd and the resulting race, pro, the, the racial protests that happened, particularly in the U.S. and in major cities like Chicago. I was listening to a podcast uh, about two years ago that asked the question, is this the end of cities as we know it? And as I was listening to that podcast, I needed to run off to the store and so I went to the store that's on the corner of our block, and it was still barricaded and blocked up because there had been, you know, looting fairly recently. And I come back to our small apartment in downtown Chicago, and I'm trying to listen to the podcast and sitting at my desk, which is an, an open plan TV room and desk and family area and music room because my son is sitting right next to me on his electric guitar, beating out tunes, uh, sorry, uh, uh, electric drums, beating out tunes as he begins to practice. And I, I say all of that to say one thing that Debs and I do, which is both relaxing and torture at the same time, is we often watch shows about living in the country. <laughs> and when we are living downtown and the pace and the, and the, the rush and the buzz and the exhaustion Living in a place with rolling hills and rolling fields and, let's be honest, fewer people is sometimes very attractive. But I want to say, friends, that overcoming the challenges of the city or the town in which you live won't happen by dreaming of rolling fields and isolation. The answer to Babylon, the answer to difficult cities is not no city. It's a new city. It's a better city. I wonder if you could throw up that uh, next picture. This is a picture uh, of a board that is around Chicago, wherever there is construction. And about 10 years ago, I mean, I'd seen it for eight years before 10 years ago when it suddenly struck me that that is a profoundly strong prophetic statement that the city are making. Building a new, insert the name of your city, right there, and that's what God has called us to do. But it comes with some subtext. Building a new, insert the name of your town or city, 
as we show them what it looks like when Jesus is king. As we show them what it looks like when Jesus is king. So the third thing that I want to suggest to you that that Jesus wants his church and therefore the churches that we are a part of to look like is to become a countercultural city within a city. And he does that in chapter 58 by talking about fasting, challenging the people of Judah and us about the way that they fast. And what he does and says, what God says through the prophet Isaiah is fasting is great and and prayer is essential, but if we don't live any differently to the world, no amount of prayer or fasting will ever change our city. And so he shows us a different way. Look at verse 6 and verse 7. This is a way from fasting from earth's food so we can feast on heavens. Is this not the, is, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loosen the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see, when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? And so friends, the way that God wants us to live is, is not to copy the ways of Babylon where we grasp after material things because heaven's riches are available to us through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And because heaven's riches are ours in Jesus, we don't need to worry about what we get back in return for the things that we give away freely. And where there are demands of relationships and family and friends, it's an opportunity for us to imitate the love of the Father and the sacrifice of the Son. As each of us give and serve and comfort and heal those around us, The Lord promises in verse 8, then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. And verse 11, you will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Friends, if we become tight-fisted with what God has, has given us, we end up becoming stagnant and arid. But when we open our hands and, and become a conduit of God's blessing, then we are like a spring that never fails. My favorite comedian is a guy called Michael McIntyre from England. He's hilarious. And he does this one bit about vacuum cleaners. And he says that we all have different strategies when it comes to vacuum cleaners. The one who stands and kind of vacuums in a circle and then moves to a different part, or or the folks who who kind of plot out a course as as they vacuum. And then he goes on to say, and we all do this, when we take out the hose, we all have this need to check whether it works, and we we make it, we turn it in on ourselves. But when we turn the vacuum in on ourselves, it loses its power. And it loses its ability to do the very thing that it was made to do. And I want to suggest, friends, that it's never God's intent for him to bless us, only for us to turn that blessing into a self-centered refusal to bless others. That's the irony of the kingdom. The irony of the kingdom is when we hoard our riches, we become poor. But when we bless others, we we actually become the envy of the world. 
we, 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 God opens up positions of influence, and, and we, we, we go far further than we ever could if we were self-promoting uh, uh, ourselves. Look at verse 12. Your, your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. So Jesus wants his church, and therefore the church that you and I are a part of, to be a countercultural city within a city. But we mustn't forget that the way God transforms cities is by transforming people. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 59. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. Friends, we need to know that God's arm has not grown too tired to save. His ability is to save and to heal and to bring breakthrough is just as strong as ever. But that probably begs the question then, why aren't we seeing the level of breakthrough that we hope for? The healings and the miracles and the salvations that he has promised. Is God the problem? Well, not according to verse 2. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. And so fourthly, Jesus wants his church, wants the church that you and I are a part of to be a place where his people are committed to living righteously. Some of us might resist that diagnosis that God has given in verse two, but to, to answer that resistance from verse 3 to verse 15, God lists out our sins and, and the results of what they produce. And at the second part of verse 15, he ends with this. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. And the same desperation in, in, in the heart of the Lord is expressed through Paul in Romans chapter 3 when he says, we've all sinned. And tragically, we're all incapable of rescuing ourselves. But the good news of the gospel is that God steps in through the person of Jesus Christ. And look at verse 16. God steps in. His own arm achieved salvation for him. By faith in Jesus, we are declared righteous and we are made righteous through faith in Jesus. It's only Jesus and, and his grace and his, and his kindness that teaches us both to say no to sin and also to lead us to repentance the mercy and the grace of God and the patience of God. And if that's not enough, look at verse 20. This is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit is on you. You will not, uh, will not depart from you. And my words that I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips. Jesus gives us the word and he gives us the Holy Spirit to make us holy. And so Jesus wants his church, and he wants the church that you are a part of and the church that I'm a part of to be a place where his people are committed to living righteously. And, and then number five, in, in Isaiah 60, he wants his church and, and the church that we are a part of to advance constantly and aggressively. Friends, we heard yesterday, we heard last night, victory is ours in Jesus, despite the fact that we didn't pay for it. 
And so Jesus is calling us to arise in him, arise in the victory that he has achieved for us. Verse one, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has, has risen upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. I'm currently recording a podcast with a young leader in our church called the Spirit and Truth Podcast. And recently we had the opportunity to interview Dr. Archie Kendall. And it was a, a profound uh, time. We, we asked him at the very beginning, what, does he, what do you feel, is asking him, that the Lord is saying to the church in the U.S.? And he paused for a moment and he said, he feels like the church and the nation, the churches in the nation, are asleep like those virgins in Matthew 25. And he said this, he said, the only time that you know you are asleep is actually when you are awakened. But he went on to say this, he said, but despite that, he is, a, he is full of faith. He believes there is gonna be a phenomenal explosion of the gospel and the kingdom of God that is gonna break into the darkness that we see in our nation and I'm sure that, the, the, that you might feel in, in yours. And when we grasp, friends, the scope and the scale of Jesus' victory over sin and over sickness and over separation from God, we shouldn't lack any ambition to go and do the things that God has called us to do. Verse 22, the least a thousand, the smallest a mighty nation. And if you're nervous with me using the word ambition, because you might think it is, it's, it's an uncomfortable word, let me say selfish ambition is sin, but not because of the word ambition, because of the word selfish. What are you called by faith in God to do? What is your church by faith called by God to do? Is it God-sized? Or is it something that you, in all honesty, might be able to do with the resources that you currently have in your hand? Do you desperately, and I ask myself this too, do we desperately need God to break in? What we are trusting for, is it worthy of Jesus' victory over sin, Satan, and sickness? Or are we settling for less than what Jesus paid for on the cross? Number five, Jesus wants his church and therefore our church to be part of, uh, that we are part of, to advance constantly and aggressively. We heard this, this week um, about Jesus who in the book of Luke was baptized with, was full of, was led by and returned in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he, he goes to the synagogue and he unfurls the, the scroll that had what we know to be Isaiah 61. And he begins to declare this, this manifesto, this, this kingdom mission statement, God's mission statement. Uh, it's a passage that I'm sure we are very familiar with. And essentially, this is the mission statement of God. That in Jesus, there is deep and lasting transformation by the Holy Spirit that brings deep and lasting joy. And so, number six, Jesus wants his church to be a place where the Holy Spirit transforms lives. And Isaiah 61 promises that the Holy Spirit will make the poor rich because he empowers humble hearts to lay hold of the riches of heaven. And he makes the brokenhearted joyful because the Spirit of God chases away the spirit of despair. 
And he leads Satan's prisoners out of dark dungeons into the glorious light of the gospel. And he picks people out of the dust and ashes of their sin and lifts them up to reign with Jesus forever. And he removes cloaks of heaviness and dresses them with garments of praise. I, I say all that to say, are you getting an understanding or a picture of the transformation that happens by faith in Jesus and as the Holy Spirit is poured out upon our lives? This is the good news that we get to preach to the poor. This is the message that we get to go to take out onto the streets of our cities and of, of our neighborhoods and of the places that we live. And this idea of the total transformation, I think, is, is most evident in verse 3. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Who are, who are the oaks of righteousness? It's those who have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus wants his church, and therefore, the church that you and I are a part of, to be a place where the Holy Spirit transforms lives, which brings us into land at Isaiah 62. Before we get there, I want to ask you just to close your eyes for a moment. I want to do a very quick recap. And I want the, the greatness of this vision that Jesus gives us for his church through the prophet Isaiah just to wash over you. Jesus' vision for his church, the church that you and I are a part of, is where no one is excluded from God's salvation. Are there no entry signs that you need to perhaps take off your heart? It's a church where people can experience his tangible presence. It's a church called to be a countercultural city within a city. It's a church where we are committed to living righteously. It's a church where, where, which is advancing constantly and aggressively. And it's a church where the Holy Spirit transforms lives. Lastly, Jesus wants his church, and therefore the church that we are a part of, to pray big prayers. To pray big prayers. And Isaiah 62 starts with Isaiah's confession that he cannot keep silent while, while God's people are failing to live in the fullness of his promises. Verse 1, for Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not remain quiet. And friends, neither should we. And so Isaiah calls us to pray uh, like this as, as watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem, as watchmen on the walls of Paris, as watchmen on the walls of Munich, and so on and so on, to pray for the fruitfulness of the gospel, to pray for people to stream into salvation along God's highways. But it's not just big prayers for out there, friends. It's also to pray big prayers for in here. Because look at verse two through five. God tells us in Jesus' name, we have been given a new name and are called to understand and operate in his power and his authority. That we are his beautiful bride and the object of his delight. And he rejoices over us. He rejoices over us. And, and, and in verse 12, Isaiah prays that, that that reality of how God names us would be the reality of our collective experience, that we would be called holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, sought after and no longer deserted. 
I'm going to ask a question, and can I say, I wish I could sit down and listen to this. So please know, I am both standing and talking and sitting down and receiving. Do you know that's how God sees you? Holy, rescued and redeemed, loved and sought after by the Lord, and no longer deserted. Friends, I've said a lot. And if any of you here are art lovers, you'll know that you have to go to the painting time and time again to actually absorb everything that the, that the, that the artist is trying to communicate. It can't be done in one sitting. And that's true for what I've just shared, and it's true for haystacks, the picture that I shared. But, but, but here's something that I don't want us to miss. It was never... Claude Monet's intent for the 25 paintings to be split up and scattered around the world. They were actually meant to be one of one collection. And friends, I fear, my own heart too, that there are times when we look at these pictures of the church and we make the same mistake that what happened with those 25 haystack paintings. We pick this, and we grab onto that, and we maybe take a little of this, and we exclude the rest which makes us uncomfortable. And in doing so, we dilute the power of the church of Jesus Christ and the glory of what it is meant to be as the body of Christ and the beachhead into nations for the kingdom of God. It's been said this last two days, jokingly, that Americans have lots of opinions. But I guarantee everyone sitting here has an opinion of what the church is meant to look like. Every person sitting here has a preference or an opinion of what the church should be or what the church should say or what the church should do or what the church should look like. But friends, until our opinions are subservient to the church that Jesus Christ is building, we will never be the glorious bride he has called us to be. I finished a preaching class with some folks in our church just recently, and I told them that when preaching, you should always leave with one single thought so people can go away with. I've given you seven. <laughs> and my only justification for doing so is the church of Jesus Christ is far too glorious to just leave you with one. But if there is one thought that I leave you with, it's this. My vision for the church of Jesus Christ must yield, must yield to Jesus's vision for his church. And then, and only then can we pray like Isaiah prayed in chapter 62. Lord, may we give ourselves no rest and give you no rest until you establish your church and make her the praise of the earth as you promised to do. And so, Lord, we pray for that in Jesus' name. We thank you for the church that you are building. Your bride, your body. And we thank you, Jesus, that it is your desire to establish a beautiful bride. You are returning 
for a bride without spot, without wrinkle, or without blemish. And today, Lord, we commit to building your way. We lay down all that we want our churches to be, all that we think our churches should be. And this morning, Lord, it was as we gaze in those eyes, those eyes of fire, as we see that double-edged sword of your word coming out of your mouth, as we are overwhelmed by your beauty, we surrender those opinions and we say, Jesus, have your way. Build your church and advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.